Chapter Twenty One of Tell It All by Fanny Stenhouse. The Origin of the Reformation, Extraordinary Doings of the Saints. From time to time, in the course of this narrative, I have had the occasion to allude to a certain period of extraordinary fanatical excitement among the saints in Utah, a period which was there popularly termed the Reformation, and I think that a brief sketch of the terrible sayings and doings of that time and the causes which led them may be interesting to the reader and may help to explain much which to a Gentile must otherwise be very obscure. The popular idea of Mormonism is that the peculiar feature which distinguishes it from all other Christian sects is polygamy. To a certain extent this is of course true, but it is only a partial statement of the truth. If polygamy were to be relinquished, it would still be found that Mormonism had really very little in common with other sects, and very much that was completely antagonistic to them. The Confession of Faith published by Joseph Smith during his lifetime would certainly deceive an uninitiated person and it was in consequence of the ambiguity of that very document that so many unsuspecting persons were from the beginning of Mormonism led astray by the teachings of the missionaries. The convert was told that the Mormon faith proclaimed the existence of one true God, but he was not told that Father Adam was that deity, and that he is like a well-to-do farmer. He was told that Christ was the Son of God, but he was not taught that the Virgin Mary was the lawful wife of God the Father, and that he intended after the resurrection to take her again as one of his own wives to raise up immortal spirits in eternity. He was told of faith in a Savior. He was not told that men were the only saviors of their wives and that unless a woman pleased her husband and was obedient and was saved by him, she could not be saved at all. He was told that the saints believed in the Holy Ghost, but he was not told, The Holy Ghost is a man. He is one of the sons of our Father and our God. You think our Father and our God is not a lively, sociable, and cheerful man? He is one of the most lively men that ever lived. And yet, although such fearful and shocking blasphemy was, of course, hidden from the convert whom it was desirable to impress with the idea that Mormonism was only a development of Christianity, it was openly taught in the sermons in the tabernacle before thousands of people, and inculcated in the writing of the highest authorities. The passages which I have just quoted were preached in public, taken down in shorthand, were revised under the superintendence of Brigham Young, or one of the chief leaders, were then printed and published in Salt Lake City, and afterwards reprinted in another form. The verbal repetition of such blasphemy as this would be simply painful and disgusting to any right-minded person. I shall therefore endeavor to give an idea of some of these outrageous doctrines without entering too closely into details. Should the reader, however, wish to search and see for himself, I refer him to the journals of discourses, 
the files of the church papers, and the publications of the Mormon writers generally. One of the first innovations upon the received faith of ordinary Christians was the doctrine of polytheism. There can be no doubt that even in Joseph's time that doctrine was taught, although, as in the case of polygamy, all knowledge of it was kept from everyone but the initiated, the strong men who could be entrusted with the inner secrets of the church leaders. That such a doctrine, however, was beginning even then to form parts of the faith of the saints may be seen in the following lines upon the occasion of the prophet's murder. Unchanged in death with a Saviour's love, he pleads their cause in the courts above. His home's in the sky, he dwells with the gods, far from the furious rage of mobs. He died, he died for those he loved, he reigns, he reigns in realms above. Many other instances even stronger than this could easily be given. The Mormon idea of the other world, while in some respects, it differed from the teachings of certain modern spiritualists, was not altogether dissimilar. The soul was said to be immortal, and it had three stages of existence. The first was purely spiritual, the state of the soul before it came into this world. Spirits in that condition were not perfect. They must first take a fleshly body and pass through the trials of life, before they could attain to the highest state of existence. Hence it was a solemn duty, as well as their highest privilege, for men to practice polygamy. Their duty, as by this means and by this alone, the yet imperfect souls now waiting to come into this world could ever hope to be admitted into the celestial kingdom, and a privilege. Thus all the souls whom they thus assisted to emigrate would form their own kingdoms in eternity, over which as kings and priests they would reign for ever and ever. The second stage of the soul's existence is the mortal, with which we are all sadly well acquainted. The third is the condition subsequent to the resurrection, when they believe the flesh and bones will form the raised body, but the blood will not be there for the blood is the principle of corrupt life, and therefore another spirit supplies its place in heaven. That Christ partook of some broiled fish and part of a honeycomb is evident from Holy Scripture. The Mormons therefore teach that heaven will be very much the same as earth, only considerably improved. We shall not marry there or be given in marriage. Hence it is necessary for us to marry here, and to marry as much as we can, for then in heaven a man will take the wives whom he married on earth, or who have been sealed to him by proxy. They will be his queens, and their children will be his subjects. We shall eat and drink and feast, and spend a happy time generally. We shall henceforth never die, hence shall we ourselves be gods. It was in the pre-existent state the Mormons teach, that the work of salvation was first planned, but not after the fashion believed by all Christians. A grand celestial council was held, at which all the sons of God appeared. Michael, the father of all, presided and stated that he proposed to create a new world, of which he proceeded to give some details. 
his first begotten then arose and made a speech in which he proposed that michael his father should go down to the world when created with eve his mother and do there much after the fashion of what is related to our first parents in the book of genesis he himself would descend some thousands of years subsequently and would lead his erring brethren back and save them from their sins lucifer the second son then stood forth and unfolded his plan jealous of the popularity of his elder brother he proposed to save men in their sins great discussion ensued in which the unnumbered family of heaven divided into three parties one under each of the two elder sons and the third standing neutral after a terrible conflict lucifer the second son was defeated and with all his followers was driven out of heaven they descended into the abyss where they founded the infernal kingdom of which lucifer became the chief he was henceforth known as the devil adam created his world and carried out his part of the plan and in due time the eldest son who conquered in heaven took upon him the form of flesh dwelt among men and was known as their redeemer the spirits who stood neutral during the fight subsequently took upon them forms of flesh entering into the children of ham and were known as negroes therefore it is that although the american indians and all other races are eligible for the mormon priesthood the negro alone can never attain to that high dignity it is only natural amidst all this confusion of ideas to ask who then is the real originator of created things in the eternity of matter the mormons have from the first believed but they have supposed that the formation of worlds and systems had definite dates although they are unknown to us far away in the immensity of space is kolob the great and glorious son of sons the abode of the first principle of godhead of which we can form any conception around that sun countless other systems revolve of which ours is one that sun itself may be only one of many other systems whose origin and existence is lost in inconceivable space and concerning which we can form no just realization while in this finite state from the first source in kolob other gods have proceeded in precisely the same way as genealogies and family trees have been continued on earth each new patriarchal god has formed his own earth out of the aggregation of matter and over that earth he reigns on the ninth of april eighteen fifty two brigham young publicly announced that when our father adam came into the garden of eden he came into it with a celestial body and brought Eve, one of his wives, with him. He helped to make and organize this world. He is Michael, the archangel, the ancient of days, about whom holy men have written and spoken. He is our Father and our God, and the only God with whom we have to do. This public declaration gave great offense and led to the apostasy of many. Nevertheless, Brigham Young thinks that just as Adam came down to Eden 
and subsequently became a god, in like manner he also himself will attain to the Godhead. Heber C. Kimball, zealous to go a step further, declared that Brigham was God, and that he, Kimball, stood towards him in the same relation as the third person in the Blessed Trinity does towards the first. It will hence be seen that subordination is one of the first principles of the Mormon faith, and this even in the church organization of the saints has been distinctively shown. For the purposes for which it exists, the Mormon hierarchy could not be surpassed. Of the priesthood there are two orders, the Melchizedek and the Aaronic, of which the former ranks first and highest. The lowest rank in the church is the deacon, and he looks after the places of meeting, takes up collections, and attends to other similar duties. Next comes the teacher. He visits the saints and takes notes of their standing, and reports the same. Weakness of faith or backwardness in paying tithing is never overlooked by him. After him is the priest, and above him is the elder, whose office it is to preach, baptize, and lay on hands. All these belong to the order of the Aaronic, or the Levitical priesthood. Bishops are simply church officers having local jurisdiction. The lowest grade in the Melchizedek priesthood is the elder. He administers in all the ordinances of the church. Above him there is no higher rank as respects the priesthood, but in respect to office there are various gradations, as for example the high priests, the seventies, and bishops, who occupy positions of authority, although both go on missions, and also the apostles. The apostles were chosen in imitation of the twelve appointed by Christ, and in the same way the seventies, in imitation of the seventy disciples, sent forth to preach and work miracles. They claim rank next to the twelve. The quorum of the apostles is presided over by the eldest of their number. The quorums of seventies are each composed of seventy elders with a president and six counselors. The number of quorums is unlimited, and over them all collectively is another president and six counselors. The highest authority in the church is the First Presidency. Brigham Young, George A. Smith, and Daniel H. Wells, who are said to represent on earth the three persons of the Blessed Trinity. As, from President Young down to the most illiterate elder, every one is supposed to be specially inspired and to be immediately guided by the gift of the Holy Ghost. Education is utterly unnecessary to the members of the Mormon priesthood. In fact, it has always been looked upon as an impediment to its possessor. Obedience is considered the highest qualification, and it was the strict enforcement of obedience on the part of the ordinary people and the lower grades of the priesthood towards the higher that alone could have made possible that state of affairs which existed during the Reformation. Hence also it is that Brigham Young and the leaders are rightly held responsible for the deeds of violence and fanaticism which their followers may perpetrate for it is well known that no Mormon, 
in a matter of grave importance, would dare to act upon his own responsibility, and without he felt sure that what he did would meet with the approbation of those in authority. There is another class of church officer which I had very nearly forgotten, the patriarchs. The chief of these is called the presiding patriarch over the church, and the rest are patriarchs in the church. The office of these dignitaries is to bless the people, and to be paid for their blessings. The price of good blessings is variable. Not long ago, when money was scarce and payments were made in produce, two dollars was considered reasonable, and if several were wanted for the same family, a reduction was made. Hiram Smith, the original prophet's eldest brother, was the first patriarch, and to him succeeded Uncle John, as he was popularly called, the eldest brother of Brigham. The present patriarch is the son of Hiram, still a young man, who obtained his office by inheritance, and this, I believe, is about the only office in the church which Brother Brigham has permitted the Smith family to inherit or enjoy. Odd as it may seem, some of the people have quite a passion for these blessings. I knew one old French woman who was said, like the woman in the parable in respect to the physicians, to have spent all of her living upon them. I met her one day with a flannel petticoat under her arm which she was going to sell. Upon inquiry, she frankly told me that she had given her last cent and had sold every scrap of any value which she possessed and nearly all of her clothes in order to obtain blessings, and as she did not understand English, she was now going to sell her old petticoat, the very last article of any value which she now possessed, in order to pay an old dame who knew a little English for her services in translating the blessings. She was in a state of great sorrow at the thought that now her supply of blessings would be stopped. She would have to do without. The patriarchs, however, at no time possessed any particular official weight, and from them never proceeded any of those strange doctrines which excited the people to violence and bloodshed. In a religious sense, this outrageous fanaticism was all originated in the first place in Missouri by some of the more prominent men, such as Sidney Rigdon, Dr. Avard, David Patton, and others, doubtless with the connivance of the Prophet Joseph, not long after the organization of the Church, and subsequently by the extreme and preposterous doctrines constantly inculcated by Brigham Young, among whom Jedediah M. Grant and Heber C. Kimball were the most conspicuous. In a political sense, it was the natural result of the peculiar position of the saints in Missouri, Ohio, and Illinois, and of the ridiculous threats of Brigham Young against the federal government after the exodus of the Mormons to the Salt Lake Valley, together with the idea, which had become popular among the people, that a temporal kingdom was to be set up among the Rocky Mountains, and that Christ should personally reign and rule there. The idea of reviving the old Jewish polity was always uppermost in the minds of the first teachers. Hence they revived the priesthood and high priesthood in their various forms. A magnificent temple was built in Nauvoo, 
just as another temple is now being erected at Salt Lake City, and so far did they go that it was even determined that the ancient sacrifices should eventually be restored. At the same time, while the minds of the Mormons, newly converted and fired with zeal, were bent upon founding the kingdom of the saints on earth, the people of Missouri, among whom they dwelt, heard that even in social life the customs of the Jews were to be introduced, and that polygamy was to be practiced. Husbands and brothers trembled for their wives and sisters, and the hatred to the new religion was increased when it was observed that the Mormons in every political movement held all together and voted as one man, thus exercising an influence which no ordinary religious sect could have possessed or wielded. This, the discipline of the hierarchy to which I have already referred, enabled them to do. Ill-feeling was shown on both sides, in a thousand petty ways at first, with more serious results presently. The Mormons were accused of circulating large quantities of base coin, of cheating and defrauding the Gentiles, as they called everyone, even Jews, who rejected the new religion, and of even being guilty of darker crimes, which last charge, however, was only at first hinted at. On the other hand, the Mormons accused their enemies of every possible villainy of which men and women could be guilty. The real fact would appear to be that both the Mormons and their enemies were at that time guilty of much wrongdoing against each other, while at the same time much that was alleged on both sides was utterly groundless, and only originated in the natural jealousy which Western pioneers, rough and ready frontiersmen, such as the people of those parts then were, would naturally feel when enlisted in two parties, animated by religious and political hatred against each other. Now came whisperings of still more atrocious deeds. It was alleged that among the Mormons a secret body of men had been chosen who were enrolled under the most frightful oaths to avenge every wrong which might be perpetrated against the saints. This band was said to have originated with Sidney Rigdon and Dr. Samson Avard, and, as I have somewhere else mentioned, Thomas B. Marsh and Hyde, the present chief of the apostles, both made affidavit that such was the case, and that the band was sworn to commit the most shocking acts of vengeance, and surely Marsh and Hyde ought to know. Various names were chosen for this death society. First, the members were called the Daughters of Zion, from Micah 4.13. But as it sounded rather ridiculous to speak of bearded ruffians as daughters, that name was abandoned, and the title Avenging Angels substituted, and that, with some other names then temporarily used, were subsequently dropped for the name Danites, from Genesis 19.17, which has since been retained not by the Mormons, for they have ever denied the existence of any such band, but by the Gentiles. It matters very little what the name of such a society might be, so long as it existed at all, and that it does, and has existed in some form, cannot reasonably be denied. There probably is not at the present time any formally enrolled society, but it is quite certain that for many years past, if the church had only dropped a hint that any man's blood ought to be shed, 
that man would have had a very short tenure of his life. Even Brigham himself said publicly, If men come here and do not behave themselves, they will not only find the Danites, whom they talk so much about, biting the horse's heels, but the scoundrels will find something biting their heels. In my plain remarks, I simply call things by their own names. It is beyond a doubt that notwithstanding all the social changes and improvements of late years, the secret police of Salt Lake City are in matters of crime as well as in fact, though not perhaps nominally, the successors of the original Death Society. Many of its members are known to have committed grievous crimes and to have repeatedly dyed their hands in blood. The shocking deeds that every now and then are divulged to the world are all of their doing, and no resident of Salt Lake City, whether Mormon or Gentile, although he might prudently decline to state his opinions, would in his mind question the fact that it is fear of consequences, and only because the saints are on their good behavior in the sight of the federal government, that the hands of these wretches are withheld from a continuance of their old enormities. As might be supposed, the establishment of a secret band of men professedly ready at a moment to steal, to shed blood, or commit any crime at the command of their leaders, created great excitement in the whole state of Missouri, and especially in the vicinity of the Mormon settlements. Like the Ishmaelites of old, the hands of the saints were against every man, and every man's hand was against them. They were taught that they were a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon was to be theirs. They were to go forth conquering and to conquer, and the Gentiles were to be trodden down beneath their feet. As might be expected, trouble immediately arose. The people of Missouri outraged the Mormons, and the Mormons in return outraged them. Murders, thefts, and the most shameful atrocities were of daily occurrence, and the history of those terrible doings would fill a good-sized volume. Suffice it to say that the excitement continued and increased, reprisals being made on both sides. Finally, the mob was triumphant, and after committing many fearful excesses, it was organized into a militia. The leading men in authority declaring that the Mormons must either leave the state or else they must be extirpated by the sword. Notwithstanding all this, the Mormons at all times and industrious people were in one sense successful and prosperous. The morality, however, of some of their leading men was, to say the least, very questionable. It was openly argued that the silver and gold were the Lord's, and so were the cattle on a thousand hills. The scripture says that God has given his people all things richly to enjoy. The saints were the people of God. He had given them all the wealth and substance of the earth, and therefore it was no sin for them to help themselves. They were but taking their own. To overreach or defraud their enemies was, facetiously called by the Mormons, milking the Gentiles. Their city, called Nauvoo, the beautiful, a name given by the prophet Joseph and supposed to be of celestial origin, was well laid out and well built. A costly temple was nearly complete, and the leaders at least began to show signs of wealth and prosperity. 
This, however, was but the lull before the storm. Writs upon various charges against Joseph and the leading elders had always been floating about, and the serving of some of the later ones had only been prevented by technical difficulties or the personal fears of the sheriff. To enter Nauvoo for the purpose of arresting the prophet was like bearding the lion in his den. For by this time one of the best equipped and best drilled militia regiments under the name of the Nauvoo Legion had been organized, and Joseph had been elected lieutenant general. The regiment consisted solely of well-tried Mormons who were devotedly attached to their leader, besides which the whole of the population of the city was at his call at a moment's notice. Into the city of the saints, as far as it was possible to prevent it, no Gentile was allowed to intrude. It was at the risk of life and property that anyone ventured. One oddly original mode of driving out the devoted stranger is worthy of mention. It was called whittling a man out of the town. Opposite the victim's door, a number of men and overgrown boys would take up their quarters, each armed with a stout stick of wood and a huge knife. No sooner did the Gentile appear than the whole horde gathered in a circle round him. Not a word was uttered, but each man, grasping firmly his stick in his left hand, pointed its other end to within a few inches of the victim's face, while with the knife in his right hand he sliced a shaving out of the wood in such a way as to bring the point of the knife almost against the face of the unfortunate man. Wherever he turned they attended him, always preserving the strictest silence and never actually touching him. The intolerable sensation caused by the whittling of this strange bodyguard, who were in attendance day and night, and the unpleasantness of seeing half a score of sharp knives flashing perpetually within an inch of his nose, generally subdued the strongest-minded Gentile. Few could endure it for more than a day or so at the utmost. They were glad to leave, whittled out of town. The evil day, however, at last came. The prophet, fearing arrest, fled, but was persuaded to return and deliver himself up. The charge against him was one for which reasonable bail could be taken. Bail was offered, accepted, and the prisoners discharged. Before leaving court, however, the prophet and his brother Hiram, the patriarch, were arrested upon a trumped-up charge of treason, a charge for which it was impossible that bail should be taken. They were therefore committed to custody in Carthage jail, under solemn promise from Governor Ford of Illinois that the state should be answerable for their personal protection. The same day, however, a mob of over one hundred men, assisted, it is said, by the militia who were left in charge, burst into the jail and assassinated the prophet and his brother. As might be supposed, this outrage by no means weakened the Mormon cause. Their prophet was now a martyr, and his name more powerful after death than it could possibly have been had he lived. 
It was, however, clearer than ever that nothing could now reconcile the people of Illinois to the Mormons, and the latter seriously began to think of leaving the state in a body as they had formerly left Missouri. The terrible doings of those times I have no idea of relating just now. I simply allude to them in order that the reader may understand how, in the excitement produced in that border warfare, it was possible for such strange events as afterwards transpired in Utah to originate. I may simply add that the temple being completed, and the first endowments given there, the people gathered up what little property they could rescue from the mob, and under the guidance of Brigham Young, and amidst privations, sufferings, and outrages of the most painful character, left the city which they had founded in Illinois and set out for the Rocky Mountains, where, beside the Great Salt Lake, they founded their modern Zion. Free now from the violence of mobs and Gentile enmity, it might have been supposed that the hatred which had so long been part of the Mormon faith would have died a natural death. The contrary, however, was the case. The Mexican War was then raging, and, en route to the Rocky Mountains, the Mormons had received a proposal from the federal government that they should supply a regiment, upon highly advantageous conditions, to join the United States troops, which were then operating in California. This suggestion was kindly made, for it was thought that the Mormon regiment thus raised would in reality be only marching their own way to going to California and that the outfits, pay, arms, and so forth, which were to be theirs, after the year for which they were enrolled had expired, would be of essential service to them. It was like paying men liberally for making a journey for their own benefit. Notwithstanding all this, Brigham Young and the leaders represented the transaction in quite another light, and the people were taught that an engagement into which they had entered of their own free will and from which they had derived substantial advantages, was an act of heartless cruelty and despotic tyranny on the part of the government. This feeling was fostered until at length the saints as a body regarded themselves as a wronged and outraged people, and considered every Gentile, in fact the whole nation, as their natural enemies. This was perhaps all the more singular, since after the vast tract of country, of which Utah forms a part, had, at the end of the war, been wrested from Mexico, Brigham Young had been appointed by President Millard Fillmore the first governor and Indian agent of the territory. He was, therefore, in federal pay, and bound, as long as he retained office, to support the government, or at the very least, not to stir up disaffection. Trouble soon arose between Governor Young and the Mormons on one side, and the judges and United States courts and officials on the other. Once, an armed mob burst into the Supreme Court and forced the judge then sitting to adjourn. At another time, a bonfire was made of the books and papers of the district courts. Then a judge on the bench was threatened with personal outrage, and subsequently a posse summoned by legal process encamped for a whole fortnight over against another posse summoned without legal process, the two bodies burning with bitter hatred and breathing out threatenings and slaughter. 
such a state of affairs could not of course last long on the one side the wildest statements were publicly made against the government threats which uttered by a little band of pioneers against a mighty nation were perfectly ridiculous stirred up the hearts of the saints on the other hand it was pretty certain that federal troops would have to be sent out to utah to preserve the peace of the territory the federal government was nevertheless defied abused and derided and the people thoroughly blinded by their fanaticism did not for a moment doubt that should governor young declare war the united states troops would vanish before the armies of the saints like chaff upon the threshing floor so absurd does all this appear that i should really hardly venture to repeat it were it not that every one in utah mormon and gentile knows that i am really understating facts rather than otherwise now came a crisis in mormon history for which all these wild sayings and unlawful doings had been so long paving the way the reformation was destined to be the crowning point of saintly folly and saintly sin End of chapter 21